If you were asked, what substance causes the most deaths, what would you say? Alcohol? Heroin? The combined deaths from alcohol and all other drugs of abuse are still less than those from the most lethal killer of all, tobacco. On this episode of Through the Trees, we sit down with Dr. Laura Martin, medical director of CEDAR. We talk about how six years ago, CEDAR made a groundbreaking change in the addiction treatment world by becoming smoke-free. Demonstrated clearly by clinical research, quitting tobacco both extends someone's life and extends their probability at overall recovery. Addiction treatment healthcare is vast territory, much of it having yet to be fully charted. It also is a field with some of the most passionate and interesting of clinicians. Each week, we walk the addiction treatment trails, learning from experts of all backgrounds and specialties. My name is Pat Failing, and I'm an addiction psychiatrist for CEDAR in the University of Colorado. You're listening to Through the Trees, the CEDAR Addiction Treatment Podcast. Well, this is Dr. Pat Failing, and we are here uh, once again as part of the Through the Trees podcast. And I'm really happy to sit down today with my boss. This is uh, Dr. Laura Martin. She is the medical director of CEDAR here at UC Health as part of the, uh, the Center for Dependency, Addiction, and Rehabilitation. And Dr. Martin is our expert, and I, I would say a national expert, in understanding tobacco. And that's what we're talking about on our radio show today, the whole world of tobacco, and especially as this applies to addiction recovery. And this is a very large topic. So, uh, Laura, thank you for joining us. Thank you for inviting me and being interested in this topic that's so dear to my heart. Where do you want to start? Can you uh, tell us a, a little of your background? Um, why do you care so much about tobacco? That is a good question, and I don't think I put that full story together until I was here working with individuals with tobacco use disorders, but it seems like as a, as a child I started out flushing my parents' cigarettes down the toilet while my brother was selling them to the neighbor kids and uh, then flushed my own my own cigarettes down the toilet um, in my 20s was eventually able to quit and find myself all of a sudden in my career back to what feels like flushing cigarettes down the toilet and what it really is is a a, a deep concern for individuals who don't get treatment for the number one preventable cause of death and uh, morbidity. And um, tobacco is different than other drugs of abuse in that it doesn't immediately become your problem or someone else's problem. And so it gets put on the back burner a lot, which I think is devastating to the health of folks with substance use disorders. Sure. You had some of, uh, a lot of your career has involved even like advanced schizophrenia research. And I know that, that uh, that's always the number one killer for people with schizophrenia as well, is actually heart disease, tobacco-related deaths. Absolutely. Um, I was doing that research about uh, 10 to 15 years ago when we were starting to discover that 
folks with uh, schizophrenia die much earlier than the normal population. And you think of the normal population or without schizophrenia, who's really normal, um, they uh, lose 10 years of their lives. And during that research, I was specifically looking at uh, receptors in the brain that are affected by nicotine in hopes of discovering a new medication for schizophrenia, since so many folks with schizophrenia smoke. And this is a little bit about how I got into addiction treatment, because as I was doing my experiments, it was hard to find people without, with schizophrenia who didn't smoke. And I became increasingly concerned about the large number smoking and more so that I couldn't find treatment for them for those that wanted to stop smoking. And so that got me a lot more interested in advocating for improved treatment. If I'm hearing you right, smokers, it shortens their life by about a decade? Correct. Okay. And, uh, and then with the, this population you were working with, with, with people with schizophrenia, it was both shortening their life, and it sounds like some people wanted help, but there weren't great avenues. Absolutely, and there were even um, myths out there that, oh no, don't quit smoking, it's going to make your symptoms worse. And there has been zero research that has shown that, and quite a bit the opposite. And there was one very poignant quote from um, an individual who was talking about how they felt that their doctor didn't care about them um, when they said, don't stop smoking, because their response was, what, you want me to die from lung cancer? That whole concept seems to segue into what we're talking about today. We try to help people really recover from alcoholism. I mean, that's kind of our number one. Um, but there's there's mixed messages and probably mixed data around tobacco, like even times where people are told, well, you should keep smoking for now, quit that down the road? Absolutely. Over and over again, you hear that. And um, yes, just quit one thing at a time. Um, and it's absolutely tragic in my mind. Um, you know, you think about even, you know, so the founders of AA, um, so with Bill W. and Dr. Bob, all of the good that they brought to the recovery movement with their mutual support groups, um, they continued to use tobacco and each died of a tobacco-related disease. The founder oh. of NA died of a tobacco-related disease. Interesting. Okay. I did not know that. So th there must be, there's some threads that link tobacco use in the recovery culture or the recovery community, I guess. Yeah, you know, I think a lot of um, smoking um, as a coping skill, and I think a lot of substance use is a coping skill. And there are some coping skills that are healthy, and there are some coping skills that are harmful. And so if you think about, for a lot of folks, their alcohol use starts as a maladaptive coping skill to avoid or suppress pain. And... Um, you know, tobacco and nicotine use can also do that. So in many ways, it is safer in the immediate term than something like alcohol. However, it's still not a healthy coping skill. And so when individuals, what happens, unfortunately, when they say just quit one thing at a time, the tobacco is never addressed. Half of their health gets attended to, like their, their drinking patterns or their drug use patterns, but the, the tobacco gets left around almost like a, 
uh, a, I don't know, socially sanctioned vice for them? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that there's several things that um, go into that um, and within beha behavioral health treatment. Uh, one of the things is that um, it is a difficult thing to treat. When you think about it, if someone's smoking a cigarette, they're putting you know, their fingers to their mouth 20 times per cigarette. Let's say they smoke a pack. That's 400 times a day they're repeating a habit. That's hard to change. And so it's not easy work. Um, and uh, so I think it can be intimidating for individuals. They feel like they need special skills to be able to do this. Um, I also think, unfortunately, there's a high rate of individuals in the behavioral health care field who themselves use tobacco. And this can bring up um, feelings of ambivalence. It can bring up feelings of not having the right skills. And sometimes I think um, there can be some denial that can get in the way of their making effective um, interventions with patients. Oh yeah, like I, some sort, yeah, a therapeutic hypocrisy. Yes. Or, or, or we could say like collusion. They don't, they don't really. They want to press somebody to quit drinking, but they, they want, they, they take a step back regarding pressing them to quit tobacco because they themselves might be tobacco users. Absolutely. There's a study out of Mayo that uh, showed that of individuals who came into treatment for drugs and alcohol use, and this is not to minimize the number of individuals who die related to those disorders, but when they tracked them over time, more people died from tobacco-related disorders. And um, so it's it's very concerning and if you know we ever had someone come into our treatment center for heroin dependence um, they also used meth would we ever say well let's hold off on the meth let's treat the heroin for right now i know treatment programs around the country historically and i'm sure a lot of them still are kind of like pro tobacco programs like you can you can smoke here what are your thoughts on this? This is where part of my mission comes in with the work that I do. Um, I would like to see a world where there are no tobacco permissive treatment centers. And that's where some of my research has centered on. Um, we ourselves went uh, tobacco free in 2013. And um, around that same time, um, another facility in North Carolina went tobacco-free, and I helped consult with a facility in Virginia to go tobacco-free. And since that time, uh, the three of us, and you could say that we're competitors, um, we actually get together at national conferences to present on this topic, hoping that we can help sway this culture from tobacco-permissive to looking at the whole health of individuals and treating tobacco more aggressively. Do you have any uh, knowledge of the current numbers today? Like how many, what percentage of programs have gone tobacco-free? Uh, it's very few, um, unless they've been mandated. I don't know the exact numbers. When we first went tobacco-free in 2013, we did an informal poll by calling several different uh, treatment centers across the country that were assessed to be 
um, highly valued for their evidence-based approach and good outcomes. And of those, I think it was about 12% were tobacco-free. Wow, interesting. So still very low. The numbers absolutely. Are still low. When I was first learning to be a psychiatrist, I remember working on inpatient psych units, and there was always a smoking room. Yeah, it was kind of a secluded room where these. I mean, this connects to I guess what we were touching on: people with schizophrenia and they're smoking, and that almost seems kind of ridiculous today yes. when I think about it. Like you're in a hospital, there's a smoking room carved out in a hospital. Yes, absolutely. And Joint Commission um, was on to that and in the 90s mandated that hospitals go tobacco free. And so many inpatient units were very fearful of what happened. And the evidence since that time has actually shown that there was no worsening of outcomes for individuals. Um, in fact, CEDAR uh, initially got an exemption from the Joint Commission mandate to be tobacco-free so that they could continue to be tobacco-permissive. Wow, interesting. So they so we, they actually had to put in extra efforts as a health center to allow tobacco yep. to go in line with the culture. Yep, exactly. As that smoking room was disappearing from where you trained, um, tobacco or cedar was lobbying to remain tobacco permissive. Yeah, interesting. So okay, so cedar made the change. We made we became smoke free in what do we? I think it was Valentine's Day, right? Yeah, Valentine's Day of 2013. So that's we're coming on what the six year anniversary of this. Can you take us back to that time? What was that like? Oh, when we did all that. Absolutely. Um, well, we wanted to do something good for everybody's heart, so that's part of why we picked uh, February 14th. And um, it took quite some time, even despite the fact that I am a, a pretty strong advocate of this, um, as well as had prior work um, with uh, Chad Morris's Behavioral Health and Wellness Group that does a lot of consulting around tobacco-free transitions. And so um, theater had approached me before I even worked here to consult with them about what to do with tobacco. And um, they weren't ready to go tobacco free. Um, they decided to like restrict to certain smoking break times or places. And in a sense, it was almost like an addictive process from a system standpoint because Cedar was trying to control this tobacco in some ways um, instead of recognizing that there was no way to truly control this um, without stopping it. And um, so we continued to be tobacco permissive. And then there was a confluence of several other individuals on staff who were interested in this possibility. Um, we'd actually recently had a staff member who relapsed to smoking as a result of work at coming back to work on this campus. Mm. And um, I had had one particular day where I was walking by the women's program. Everybody was out on their wicker chairs in the sun with their lighters and their packs of cigarettes strewn all about. And I mean, it almost looked like a bar scene. 
Um, so came back in and said, hey, you know, is there something we can look at doing about this? And uh, so Ann Felton, who was the director of operations at the time, put together a survey of uh, folks um, at Cedar. That's right. The other thing that was going on is I'd started some tobacco cessation groups. And in every group I was in, at least two people raised their hands that they had started or relapsed to smoking while in addiction treatment. Mm, and yeah. in my okay. mind, that's an iatrogenic illness. Oh, yeah. Like, they, yeah, we're, we're teeing them up to go back to a life-threatening problem. Absolutely, right? Would we ever have someone come into a hospital and say, there's a 5% chance you're going to get hepatitis C while you're here, but we're not going to treat it? Yes, yeah. Okay. So all of those things came together, and um, we got a group together and did this survey. And so, because we figured we needed data to really move individuals and in the culture to being tobacco free. And the incredible data that we found was that of individuals coming into Cedar who were not using tobacco, 5% left Cedar using tobacco. Okay. So 5% hospital-caused illness is how I interpreted that. Um, and then of our individuals who were tobacco users, a third of them were increasing how much they were using tobacco while in treatment. And a very small percent, 10%, were talking about quitting, um, which seemed like a low number given the fact that behavioral health change and treatment of addiction is what we do. So those numbers, um, I think, really got the attention of our administration and uh, helped propel the movement forward. So then we got a committee together from every single aspect of this. We had facilities folks, admissions folks, and um, plans. We did patient focus groups, announced about a month ahead of time that we were going to go tobacco-free. My knees, um, to admit it, I wouldn't have admitted it externally at the time, were shaking. Um, there were a lot of fears. I think two of the biggest barriers when it comes down to it of going tobacco-free are fear that the census is going to drop and that the program's going to lose money. And then the other thing that individuals say is that you're going to decrease access to treatment for people who smoke because they can't come to your center anymore. So I was pretty nervous, um, had a lot of support, and we made the transition. And the incredible thing is that we found that actually our census went up after our transition, and we had a similar number of smokers still coming into treatment. Um, so that was reassuring. We actually wrote that up and had it accepted by a peer-reviewed journal um, with the hope that we could uh, continue to disseminate this message and that this could be done without affecting profits. Sure. I think one of the most important things that uh, we, we didn't foresee ahead of time with this transition was having enough nicotine replacement available about 24 hours after we went, uh, or may have been 48 hours after we went tobacco-free. Our pharmacy called and said we had no more nicotine replacement. And uh, so we yelled back, would you ever tell someone that you don't have any more of a heart medication? Let's get it. 
And the other word of wisdom that I would recommend is don't use squeeze balls the time that you go tobacco free. I stayed here that evening. We had some wonderful ceremonies, um, burning and getting rid of old cigarettes. And there were a lot of balls being thrown around the residential center by everybody. Oh, interesting. So people were, that was a, that was a, a stressful time. Yeah. So probably the patients, probably the staff too. Yep. And and this is a big deal. And I know that, I mean, it makes sense that treatment programs would be, they want to help people recover. And so we don't want people to get scared away. Um, I feel like we've had some people who have said that they preferentially have chosen to get treatment at Cedars some, because it being tobacco-free. Absolutely. We actually had one gentleman, I think he might... I'm trying to remember if he was your patient, um, who came at the end of January and he thought we were already tobacco free. And he was disappointed when he got here and there were still folks using tobacco. Um, so there are some individuals, family members were the biggest fan of this. Um, Their reaction was, why did it take so long? We're so happy this happened. Yeah. I mean, just from a point of view of health, I know recovery is all about health and wellness and it just seems so counterintuitive or uh, antagonistic to that value of having clouds of smoke and everybody hanging out smoking amidst times. And then they're, then they're going to go to fitness after they're done smoking. Right. Some of that seems kind of laughable. Totally. And for me, you know, everybody's concerned about the potential financial aspects of going tobacco free. But when you take it to a personal level, what I tell patients now is that, you know, treatment is expensive and I want you to get every darn penny out of your treatment. And if you go and smoke after your group session, you are reinforcing the idea that you can use a chemical to manage the feelings that you're experiencing. And we are robbing you of the opportunity to get the most out of your treatment. Sure, to ex- experience something new or to try something different. Absolutely. If we have somebody that you encounter who is trying to quit alcohol, and what does the research tell us about smoking? Like, Should we encourage them to quit tobacco when they're trying to quit drinking? Absolutely. Um, there was a meta-analysis done by uh, Jody Prochaska out of the University of California, San Francisco, and what that means is she took several different studies and clumped them together to see if they came up with a a similar recommendation. And the results from that study showed that um, individuals who participated, they didn't even have to quit forever, but who participated in a tobacco cessation intervention were 25% more likely to retain their overall recovery. So recovery rates went up with an intervention. And then the other thing that that meta-analysis looked at is that individuals were successful in quitting. I can't tell you the number of people who've um, used nicotine replacement here and been like, oh, I didn't realize that worked so well when I am ready to stop. I'm going to be a lot more confident in my ability to stop. So they were successful on both fronts. They were well-equipped to actually quit tobacco successfully, and they had a strengthened alcoholism recovery or 
Yep. Whatever of their of their their primary other drug of choice. Yes. I'm sure we tell our patients those numbers while they're here. What do the what do patients say? We do. Um, so there's a whole range. Um, there's some patients that say, "Oh, that's rigged. That's not true." Um, we get a lot of um, a, a single case. That is the opposite of that. Well, my grandmother, who was 99, was smoking away with her whiskey. So we get that to the other extreme of, yes, I'm ready to quit it all now. Um, I was here, you know, three years ago. Once I returned to tobacco use, the alcohol came shortly after. I see that connection now. So there's a whole range of responses. I think mostly um, individuals want to stop. They just lack the confidence to do it now. Do you have any theories like wh- why quitting tobacco strengthens their recovery? Like, what, How would we dismantle that? Like, What is actually going on? I think there's a couple of things going on. Um, one thing that I think is going on is that you don't have a substance that is continuing to ping that dopaminergic system so frequently. And so I think that's part of it. So if you stop the tobacco as well, um, that neurobiology heals a little bit better. The other thing I think that happens is that, like I mentioned before, this is an incredibly ingrained habit. And so if you are able to make the changes to break that habit and have success, that intent and determination um, and the same coping skills can strengthen the recovery from other substances. Like a, a, a morale around empowerment? Yes. Or, um... And pure out skills. So, so when someone comes into treatment very often they say oh I'm not craving alcohol we have kind of this desert island phenomenon right it's not Mm -hmm. available I'm not really craving it right but what are they craving they are craving the junk out of tobacco while they're here so all of a sudden I have 10 opportunities throughout a day to educate a patient that, look, a craving is like a wave. It's going to pick you up, you're going to feel out of control, and in a few minutes, it's going to drop you back down. And they get the practice to see that. And then we can talk about this is what it's going to be like with alcohol if and when those cravings do return. Okay, so very good. So real-time practice with coping with cravings. Yep, absolutely. Experience the compassionate care of CEDAR, the Center for Dependency, Addiction, and Rehabilitation. Located at the University of Colorado Hospital, we manage complex health needs in addition to addiction. To learn more, visit cedarcolorado.org. Okay, well, very good. And I know you you alluded to things like nicotine replacement products that will put people on a patch. I know. I know. Today we're using a fair amount of things with uh, what are called nicotine lozenges here at Cedar. We also start people on some of the other medication approaches. And can you comment a little bit on that? Like, kind of what you've what you've experienced in using some of the tobacco quit methods. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I approach uh, tobacco cessation uh, like other uh, chemicals in that uh, very often a two-pronged approach is needed. There, there needs to be some sort of medical stabilization so that an individual can attend to the behavioral and the cognitive and the emotional symptoms. And so there are specific treatments. Um, some great uh, treatments out there include the American Lung Association has freedom from smoking, and you can do that online. It's a it's a wonderful program. The Cancer Society has a program. So there's a lot out there, as well as any individual who's doing addiction treatment um, has the skills to do tobacco treatment. And the, on the flip side of that is the medication approach. And there's several excellent treatments uh, for tobacco cessation. We have nicotine replacement that comes in lozenge, patch, gum, inhaler, and uh, nasal spray. The latter two are prescription only because they do have some abuse potential. And then we also have bupropion, which is called Zyban. Be careful with that one that you don't also get prescribed Wellbutrin because that's its antidepressant name and it's the same medication. And then we have Varenicline, which is also called Chantix. So, uh, okay, so to clarify, when, uh, so Wellbutrin and Zyban are the same. So when you say be careful not to be prescribed, you mean like don't double up exactly the prescription. And I know I, when I tell patients if you're on Wellbutrin, you are actually already on a smoking cessation medication that has some data. Enchantix is, that's a big deal. We see that oftentimes advertised on TV. Uh, there's a lot of push. I know it's the, right now we're in January of 2019, so this seems to be all over the board. It's, everybody's going to quit tobacco in January. Have we had some success with putting people on Chantix? In residential treatment? And yeah, absolutely. Um, so, so Chantex was a really, really big deal when it came out because it was a new mechanism that uh, it, what Chantix does is it's called a partial agonist. So at those nicotine receptors in your brain, if you don't have nicotine on them, you can go into withdrawal. But if Chantix is on that receptor, it prevents you from going into withdrawal. But then what happens is it blocks other nicotine that you bring into your body. It acts like that blocker so you don't get that high from the nicotine. If you smoke on top. If you smoke, if you smoke. on top, okay. exactly. And so it, um, what it does is it blocks that rewarding effect of smoking, but also blocks that re the rewarding effect of making your withdrawal symptoms go away. So we call we call that both positive and negative reinforcement that it affects. Sure. Uh, what's been your experience here at Cedar? Are, are a lot of the people we work with open to some of these modalities, or what do you see? Um, patients or providers? Well, that's a good question. 
How, um, how about providers? Excellent. Yeah, are, you know, I think it's mixed. I, I think that there still are a lot of providers out there that um, view tobacco-based interventions as secondary to the work that they're doing. And so, you know, the diagnosis isn't made and put into the chart. Um, interventions aren't listed on the treatment plan. And um, they, so I think that's present. And I think with the patients, um, there are a high percentage. So when we looked at that survey I mentioned earlier of people who want to quit smoking after they leave cedar, before we were tobacco free, that was about 10%. After we went tobacco free, that went up to 50%. So I'd say that's consistent with about a half of our folks wanting to quit. I think that's important like so when the culture of the center changes in terms of its overall initiatives a lot of times the patients kind of follow suit in terms of their their specified health initiatives as well absolutely and i i think that they see how important it is to everyone and how seriously it's taken and i tell you what another thing that came out of our tobacco free transition is that we actually had staff members who made quit attempts, um, staff members who quit using tobacco altogether. Um, and that was a, a, a really poignant um, and beautiful thing to see as a result of this. Yeah, and that makes sense. Like we're actually, yeah, that we're helping people who work here embrace their own health yep. and make change. That's wonderful. You know, one thing I was very curious about if there is somebody out, uh, a listener, if, if somebody has only nicotine use disorder, is that, will, will insurance companies pay for some dedicated addiction treatment just for that? Like IOP, outpatient counseling treatment? Yeah, so you can get outpatient treatment. Typically it has to be uh, tobacco uh what's the term for a tobacco treatment specialist, uh, tends to be at the counselor level. There will be some reimbursement for medications. It tends to be very time limited. This is one of the tragic things. We know that substance use disorders are chronic illnesses and you can't treat it with just three months and then stop. Um, but that tends to be the reimbursement for insurance. There is one residential tobacco treatment program in the nation and that's at Mayo. It's a one-week program. It's typically and uh, insurances will cover that. It's typically folks with quite severe co-occurring medical conditions okay. that could be improved with the tobacco use. So like severe heart disease, um, uh, pulmonary issues. I mean these are t tobacco related disease. Yes. I think where we're going to get some inroads within the medical community in treating tobacco use is if um, outcomes are better bundled into payment for procedures. So one potential example of that is uh, tobacco use really interferes with wound healing and bone growth. And so some orthopedic procedures um, are hampered 
by tobacco users and if they return to smoking. And uh, outcomes are improved if those individuals stop smoking before the surgery. So I think that we'll start to get some traction when it becomes clear that other more expensive treatments are in jeopardy if oh, the sure. tobacco is not addressed. Sure. Then we're, yeah, we're back to things like the bottom line. Like if, if somebody put a quarter million dollars into somebody's back... Yep. They probably are, or, or more, I guess, are probably very invested in that person's back getting a good outcome. Yes. And in some ways, you know, this may become a health disparity because I've talked to individuals who've been refused surgeries um, because they have not been able to stop their tobacco use and they have not been able to access enough care before the intervention to make that happen. Oh, fascinating. So yeah. It's, it served as, uh, it was a, a rate limiter for them being able to get other procedures or other services. Yes. Okay. Laura, where do you, where do you see our field going over the the next few years? I know we're, uh, we've been at this for some time. What do you imagine? You know, I thought we were making some really great inroads into this. You know, at national levels, we're down to 14% of smokers. Um, you know, rates among folks with substance use disorder are closer to 60%. Um, and now I'm quite concerned with the introduction of electronic nicotine devices and Juul. Um, there's a new generation of folks getting addicted to highly potent forms of nicotine. Um, you know, there have been, uh, there's at least one case report of a youth with a seizure related to electronic nicotine devices. And um, so while I'm quite fearful about this worsening of um, illness for individuals, I do think that it's going to raise enough awareness that we will increase our efforts to better treat this illness. Oh, interesting. Yeah, the yeah the world of, of vaping and e-cigarettes, I think, is the is the next frontier. And I know, I I think a lot about the the dollar amounts with this. I know Altria pumped in a ton of money into the Jewel company. And Altria, for our listeners, Altria manufactures Philip Morris and Marlboro. They they have pretty, I'm, I'm assuming, have pretty sophisticated data analytics. Like their money is wisely spent. So if they're pumping a lot of money into e-cigarettes, they're going to get a return on that investment. Absolutely. So, well, but very interesting. And also, I guess, discouraging culturally too. Maybe I think we might have to shelf this for a, another episode of our podcast, really exploring e-cigarettes and vaping. Yeah, I would absolutely love to talk about that some more because while there may be some good, there's a lot of bad and ugly. Sure. And yeah, cultural trends, behavioral health patterns, uh, reliant on substances, and we, we spend so much effort to try to get people to be able to embrace a more holistic wellness life. And Cedar does that very well. I think we we get very good results with people making a lot of strides in all different avenues of wellness. And I know that tobacco is a big thing for that. And I, I think it would seem, it seems so distant right now of when we used to have smoking around here, but the, um, I don't know, it would, that would almost seem, I don't know, shameful or something to have people walking out the door 
on a ton of tobacco amidst all these efforts of trying to help them get healthy. And they yeah. Were, they're still on tobacco. Oh, yeah. I have one person who uh, continued an intensive outpatient treatment, and he was like, oh, Dr. Martin, I can't believe it. I just wanted to have a smoke when I left, and I was going to stop again, and I couldn't, and now I'm hooked again. Um, I am happy to report that uh, two years later, he's now tobacco-free, um, but it was hard. Sure. This is, well, it's an insidious struggle, and it very clearly shortens people's life by a decade. That's a big deal. Okay, final thoughts? I think that my final thoughts regarding this is that I really appreciate the time of this podcast to be able to raise awareness regarding this issue and the openness to more podcasts uh, because this is a disease of youth. And uh, when you look at, uh, you know, the number of smokers over a lifetime, it uh, drops. And, uh, you know, I, I think we could do a lot of good for our world by really enhancing services for adolescents. We didn't talk about that piece. And I think that would be my final thought is, uh, as you can, please, please, please advocate for treatment for adolescents with nicotine and tobacco use disorders. Okay, very good. Well, this has been uh, Dr. Pat Failing, Dr. Laura Martin, uh, here at CEDAR. It's part of the Addiction Psychiatry Program, and everything we do is part of our uh, Through the Trees podcast, talking about tobacco. This was very good. Laura, thank you. Oh, thank you. Take care. Thank you for listening to Through the Trees, the Cedar Addiction Treatment Podcast. Please visit cedarcolorado.org for a wide array of educational content about the disease of addiction and the science of recovery. If you or a loved one are considering Cedar and the University of Colorado Hospital for treatment, please speak with our admissions team at 720-848-3000. Cedar the Center for Dependency, Addiction, and Rehabilitation, helping people build a life of recovery.